Well, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 28. Some of us may have thought this day would never come. I looked back at my first, um, my first sermon in Acts four years ago, <laughs> three years ago, whatever it was. And, and in my outline, in my uh, teaching, it said something like, you know, my outline right now shows that we should be done in a year. But I even said in my notes, like, but you know how that works. So don't hold me to it. But uh, obviously, we've had a pandemic happen. We've had some different sidetracks of studies and things over the last couple of years. But we are almost finished with the book of Acts. Been a blessing but this morning, we're continuing our study in Acts. We're going to be looking at Paul's journey to Rome. I've subtitled it, Saved, Serve, Serving, I can't even say my own subtitle, Saved, Serving, and Sailing. So, Saved, Serving, Sailing. Our main text is Acts 28, verses 1 through 15. I'm only just going to give you some brief context here. But in our, our last two studies in the book of Acts, we, we made our way through chapter 27, where we saw the Apostle Paul, he had appealed to be judged by Caesar, finally sailing to Rome as a prisoner, and he had already been a prisoner. He had imprisoned, been imprisoned unjustly for two years before that in Caesarea. But, but with that sailing voyage leading to destruction, not even making it to Rome, getting uh, this typhoon coming on the sea and being blown in all kinds of different ways. And finally, the, the 276 passengers on that ship, by the grace of God, all making it safely to land. And that's where we kind of finished out chapter 27 two weeks ago. But if you missed either of those studies in Acts 27, I do encourage you to listen to them on our podcast or church app or website. Uh, I think... Uh, you know, just given the context of Paul in the storm, the things that God did, the ways that he encouraged Paul, um, the ways that he showed up in Paul's circumstances, I think there's a lot there for many of us that the Lord may want to use to encourage us, to stir us, to, to strengthen us with whatever we might be facing. But that brief context is just to kind of catch us up for where we're at as we get into chapter 28. So let's read Acts 28, starting in verse 1. We're going to read the first few verses. Luke, again, writing all of this, he says in verse 1, Now, when they had escaped, they then found out that the island was called Malta, because they had the best chocolate Malta shakes around. JK. Anyways, verse 2. And that I was debating whether I was going to go with that one, but you guys know me, so... The natives, verse 2, showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. Now, the island of Malta is a, a little over 100 miles south of the southernmost tip of Italy, just out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. But they, because of the storm and the way that the storm clouds had covered and, and kept the, the sun and the stars from peaking, out and being visible, they, they lost their navigational ability. They didn't know where they were at. They didn't know what island that they had crashed onto. But, but I want us to see in Luke telling us at the end of chapter 27 and 
then in the first verse of chapter 28 that they had escaped safely to land, that this was God being faithful to his word, his promise to Paul. He didn't promise Paul that there would not be a shipwreck. No, he actually promised that the ship would be destroyed, but that in spite of having to go through being shipwrecked, now for a fourth time in his adult life, in his Christian life, in seeking to live for the Lord, the fourth time being shipwrecked, that Paul and all those with him, the promise was that they would be saved. You know, I think often for us, we love the promises of God, but we don't like them when they include hard things for us. You imagine being in Paul's shoes. They're in the storm. The typhoon's going. The ship's just rocking back and forth. None of them have eaten. They're all super weak. And then the angel comes and shows up to Paul and is, okay, something good's going to happen because, I mean, God just doesn't send angels for nothing. It's got some sort of message. Let's hear this message. The ship's going to be destroyed. You're like, thanks a lot. Thank you, Lord. I kind of got that feeling. I got that vibe from where we were going that it was probably not going to end very well. But, but the promise was, I'm going to grant you all those that are with you. You're all going to be safe because, Paul, you're going to make it to Rome. However, you're going to run aground. Like It's not going to end the way that you might want it to. And I think that oftentimes... Those things that are less desirable for us, that, you know what, they just, we wish that that wasn't part of our Christian life. The hard things, the trials and the storms and the suffering and the, the persecution, the hostility in our culture towards any sort of Christian values or the Bible itself, like, it, we, we, we can kind of be repulsed that God would allow or bring any of that into our lives, and we just want to gravitate towards the the fluffy sort of nice promises that we really like, right? Like, God, just let me focus on all the blessings. You're just going to bless me. You want to bless me. It's like, yeah, he wants to bless you. But sometimes his blessings actually come out of suffering. They come out of hard things, not because he's cruel to us. But to see that God's promise, his word, he's going to fulfill. He will do it every time. God got Paul and all the 275 other people all to land safely. God did it. God did it. And we can be encouraged in that, that in those things that God has said in his word, and yes, there are hard things, there are promises that we might want to skip over, like Jesus saying, in the world you're going to have tribulation, but cheer up! I've overcome the world. Like, I've got this. It's going to be hard, but I got this. I've already won. That our hearts would be able to grab onto that and go, well, Lord, if, you if you're telling me be of good cheer or I can have joy in the midst of the hard things, then, Lord, it's, it's got to be something you're able to do and you will do. But oftentimes we've got to release our will to the Lord in those situations to actually 
experience the joy because we can fight and try to escape. And God's just going, just rest. How many of us have fought our way through his trial and then we're like, but God, you just wanted me to rest in the midst of the trial. You had joy for me in the midst of the trial, but maybe I missed some of that. But, but, but Lord, next time. You ever said a next time prayer to the Lord? Lord, I really botched that one up. Lord, I really didn't do that very well. But God, next time. Next time, God, I want to do it differently. You know what the great part about God? He gives us next times. He's so gracious. Here they are on the island of Malta. Verse 2 tells us it's rain and colding. Or colding. <laughs> it's rain and colding. It's raining and cold. But we see the grace of God in the, in the midst of all this as the people of Malta, the natives of the land, showed them unusual kindness. They kindled a big fire for them and made them all feel welcome. They, they had just been through a really traumatic series of events with the typhoon, going without food for two weeks. They had one, like, meal that they just had after two weeks of not eating. It's not like that just kind of restarts your system, like that two weeks of not eating doesn't impact you. They had one kind of good meal there right before the ship crashed and started to be destroyed, and they had to swim their way to land. They gave up hope at one point that the shipwreck happened, happened, and now they're in a place that they don't know. They don't have any provisions. They're, they're soaking wet. It's raining and it's cold from the storm. And right away, God brings them unusual kindness from an unlikely source. The, the native people, which when we think of native, when we read this, we might be thinking like these people have like, you know, leather, barely like patched clothing or something that native is just like they lived there this was their this was their spot this is their country um, but here they are they're meeting the needs of Paul and his friends and all these people who had been shipwrecked and ultimately God's going to use this to create an opportunity for Paul and his friends to be used by the Lord to minister to those in need on the island and, and ultimately point them to Jesus, but let's keep reading in verse 3. It says, But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom, though he has escaped the sea, yet justice is not allowed to live. But he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. You know, Paul had just been used powerfully by the Lord to be a a beacon of hope and encouragement and stability in the storm on the ship. You know, when no one else was stepping up to provide leadership, when no one else was stepping up 
to try to be a voice of calm in the midst of all the panic and the fear. Paul, the prisoner on the ship, was the one who God raised up to be that person. We praise God for people in situations where when everything starts to go sideways, that they're like, hey, let's pray. Hey, and you know, the Lord's got this. Or, you know, and they're, and they're sort of a, they're used by the Lord to be that source of stability and hope and encouragement in, in really chaotic situations that we might find ourselves in. God made Paul that person. God used Paul to help keep everyone alive through the shipwreck with not a life being lost. And now we see Paul serving by gathering sticks for the fire. You know, I, I think in our, on our flesh, like on a, just a very selfish human level, if we were in Paul's shoes at this point in time, we'd be like, I'm going to let everybody else do the hard work. Like, cool, you guys do it. I'm going to wait for the fire to get going because, I, I mean, you guys have all been through a lot, but like, this has been, this has been even more on me than maybe anyone else here, I'm just going to kind of, I'm going to chill out. Like, you guys, you guys do all the work. Like, I'll just kind of supervise. But, but clearly, Paul never saw himself as being above others or above doing very practical tasks and, and definitely never thought that others should be serving him. But when seeing a need, he stepped in and he filled it humbly and self, selflessly, which is evident in how he was directly involved with, get, with getting all the firewood for this big bonfire to get it going and to keep it maintained so that everyone else could get some warmth in the midst of the rain and the cold. But as he helped with gathering the sticks and put them on the fire, he didn't realize that in with the sticks was a deadly, poisonous snake. Now, I'm not a snake person never owned a snake but i do know that snakes i believe in cold climates and cold weather they get kind of lethargic i'm a little lethargic you know you when you say lethargic don't you want to say it with sort of a boston thing anybody else when you say lethargic one person in the back anyways snakes a little lethargic so it's in this with a bundle of sticks if you're from Boston, I'm not mocking you. I think you're awesome. He puts it in the fire, and no animal is just going to, like, chill out. Like, cool, I'm going to just be burned to death here. The viper leaps out of the fire and bites onto, fastens onto Paul's hand and just sort of hangs there, latched onto him. Now, I, I do want to point out just really briefly here that there are some, and usually they're in more rural sorts of areas, and that have come up with some really wacky theology that often has to do with, you know, being a person of faith, that, you know, when Jesus said in the gospel accounts to his apostles, very specifically, that you'd be able to pick up a snake and not be you know, not be hurt by it. That, that then that somehow transferred onto 
every single believer potentially, as long as you're a person of faith, that you could handle a a poisonous snake and you're going to be fine. Now, the bad part is that even in modern times and even in recent years, I have read about these pastors in these sort of snake handling churches dying from snake bites. Now, I, I want to, and I, I say that because there's, you know, it, it's, this is an isolated, we're isolating something in a text and we're taking it out of context and then we come out with the wrong interpretation and application of something. And so, nowhere else in the New Testament do we see somebody picking up a snake. But I also want us to see that Paul does not pick up this snake as some sort of act of faith. Look at how faith-filled I am, poisonous snake. Oh, look at how I got all this faith. He didn't pick up a snake. This isn't like, a, this isn't like hey, guys, let me show you what real faith looks like. He's bit by the snake unintentionally. This was like just happened to happen. So I just want to say that because if you ever hear of something like that, you, like me, will come to the right conclusion that that's completely whack and unbiblical. We love those people. God, please change their theology, but it's not right. Anyways, so sometimes we hear of stuff and we're like, is that okay? Is that biblical? Like, no, it's not. So that's why we go back to the Bible and, and see what the Bible says. But here's Paul. He's got this snake latched onto his hand that the natives there who were helping, they see all of this happen. They see the snake hanging from Paul's hand, and we, we see that they came to their own judgment about Paul because of this situation, and their judgment isn't unlike the sort of conclusion many people come to when something bad happens to someone. I mean, it happens all the time. We come to some sort of snap judgment about something This happens in media all the time. Something happens, and all of a sudden, there's this really strong, you know, conclusion that seems to be very factual, and then, you know, when a little bit of time happens and some more evidence about that thing comes about, it's like, well, actually, that wasn't the thing. Actually, we came to the wrong conclusion about that. We can come to a judgment, and oftentimes, we can even judge someone's motives when we don't even know someone's heart. We can see something and we can come to our own judgment about that and we judge the person that quickly. And it was no different for these people here on Malta. They're like, oh, there's a snake biting onto his hand. The dude's a murderer, obviously. He's a bad guy. Because only bad things happen to bad people. If he was a good guy, this wouldn't have happened to him. Almost like they had sort of a karma sort of mindset, which is completely dispelled even just by looking at the person of Jesus. Karma, the idea of karma is completely debunked by looking at the person of Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect, sinless life. So if bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people, Jesus only did did good. The Bible tells us that none are good, no, not one. None are righteous. All are sinners and fall short of the glory of God, that all of us deserve judgment for our sins, if not for Jesus. 
Jesus lived that perfect life. He was hated and persecuted and mocked and beaten and, and rejected by his own people who he came to save. And then he was murdered on a Roman cross in our place. So if bad things happen to bad people, good things happen to good people, Jesus alone, just his life, proves that that is false. Because only bad happened to the only good person who's ever walked on the face of this planet, and that was Jesus Christ himself. And the only truly good person to ever live took all the bad so that you and I could get the good. We could get the goodness of God given to us because of the grace of God. Not because we deserved it, not because we were good enough, but because God is good, because Jesus loves us that much that he would come and and look at us and go, you're bad, actually. But I want to take your sin and in place, I'm going to give you my righteousness. Man, that's good news. That's the gospel. And so we look at this situation and we look at the judgment that they come to. I, I think in some ways it is also a check for us. Like, hey, let's make sure our judgment's right. Our judgment's not hypocritical. Our, our judgment is not partial when we look at things or situations or people. They came to this conclusion, Paul must have been a murderer. He escaped the shipwreck, but justice... And literally in the Greek, they're referring to the goddess of justice in Greek mythology. That the goddess justice did not allow him to live. That Paul must have got what was coming to him. And these people had no doubts based off of the kind of snake that they saw hanging from Paul's hand. That Paul was about to die. Like this guy is about to die. But notice the shift that happened in Verses 5 and 6, Paul shakes off the creature into the fire and he suffered no harm. It it bit him, but it didn't harm him. And, And the why of that is because God had promised Paul that he was going to get him to Rome to stand before Caesar Nero and neither a shipwreck or even the most venomous snake on earth was going to thwart God's plan or God's promises. So the natives keep watching Paul. They wait for him to swell up or drop dead, right? Because they've probably seen other people get bitten by this sort of snake. They're like, we see, we've seen this before. Cousin Jimmy, poor guy, right? he swelled up and then he dropped dead. That was the pattern, swell up, drop dead. So they're watching Paul. When's it going to happen? And time keeps going. They're like, he's not swelling up. He's not dropping dead. So they, they change their minds. No longer is he a murderer. No, he's, he's got to be a god. See, the logical outcome was that Paul should have died because of that snake bite. But when it didn't happen, they thought that there was some supernatural reason for why he didn't die. And there was. But instead of seeing that it was Paul's God who had kept him safe, they thought that Paul himself was the God. Now, Luke doesn't tell us that Paul knew they came to this conclusion about him. And clearly, if Paul had known they thought this about him, he would have made sure that they knew he was not a God. He would have made sure to put all the glory 
on the Lord for his intervention in the snake not harming or killing him. And I can say that confidently based upon the situation we see in Acts chapter 14 where Paul was in Lystra with Barnabas. They healed a crippled man. God used them to heal a crippled man. And because of that, the the Lystran people, they began to shout and declare in a loud voice that these were gods, that the god Zeus and Hermes had come to us in the forms of men. And they start to try to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. And once Paul and Barnabas understood what was going on, they tore their clothes and they're like, look, we're just men like you. Like, you need to turn from these useless idols to the living God and, and, you know, made sure to give the glory to the Lord. But in that situation, I wonder, you know, how many times Paul could have had a a sort of a post-traumatic stress sort of response um, to something. Because in that situation, back in Acts 14, the people shouted, Paul's a God, and then shortly after that, we see in that same chapter that when the God, re- uh, the gospel-rejecting Jews came to Lystra, that they persuaded the people against Paul, and actually those same people that had shouted that Paul was a God stoned Paul with stones, drug him out of the city, and left him there thinking that he was dead. So this like major shift in perspective. He's a God. No, he's not a God. Let's kill this guy. Let's stone him. Let's pick up stones. I think we have to clarify nowadays when we say stoned, what kind of stoning we're talking about. Stoning with stones. Throwing it at him in his face, and his body. Thankfully, though, the situation here on Malta is going to turn out much differently than when Paul was in Lystra. But let's, let's keep reading verses 7 through 10. It says, In that region, verse 7, there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island whose name was Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. So this was like, not to be gross, but this is diarrhea. Uh, some sort of stomach or intestinal infection. Paul went into him and prayed, and he laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. They also honored us in many ways, and when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. So after that initial welcome happened, and the whole snake bite situation happened, and all of that, we find that there's this leading citizen of the island. This was a prominent Roman official who owned a portion of land in that region where they'd been shipwrecked, named Publius. This man received them, provided lodging, and took care of their needs for three days. And I, you know, even as we read this whole thing, we, we know that 276 people were shipwrecked. So when we read this, it's like, did Publius like, provide lodging for all t- 276 people? It's possible if he had a sizable portion of land, if he was a pretty wealthy man, that that could have happened. But I think it becomes pretty clear that that three days probably was needed also to provide different kind of more semi-permanent housing for these people who were going to stay there, as we're going to find, for three months And so to kind of set things up, make sure that they're okay and they're taken care of. But we also have to remember that this 
these 276 people weren't all part of Paul's party here. Paul's a prisoner, so he's at the mercy of the centurion Julius, along with the other prisoners, which we don't know how many that there were who were also on their way to Rome. But included with those prisoners and the soldiers and Julius himself was Paul's two friends, Luke and Aristarchus. So, you know, there could have been a couple dozen people potentially who were involved in sort of the primary, you know, hospitality that was being given. But at some point in those three days, it, it seems that Publius's father got sick, or maybe he was already sick before this with fever and dysentery. Now, I think, you know, in modern times, when we read about something like dysentery, we, we kind of just go, well, cool, we got Pepto-Bismol. Or, you know, I can get some sort of medication if I have some sort of infection or bacteria. Like, I, it's, it's remedied fairly easily. But in that day, and it's still in modern day, and in actually many parts of our world who don't have the same kind of health care as us, dysentery was fatal. You would die because if you're having that sort of thing, diarrhea happening, and you're losing a lot of bodily fluids and you're becoming dehydrated, it eventually will kill you. You can't recover from it. And so this was a pretty serious thing. This wasn't a light thing. Like, he's just got some fever and some diarrhea. Give the guy a Pepto-Bismol and, you know, call me in two days kind of situation. No, this is like, this is pretty serious. And, and Paul took it seriously. When he heard, he went in to where he was. He prayed and he laid his hands on him and, and we're told healed him. Now, clearly Paul didn't heal this man by his own power, nor could Paul just heal anyone at will. Because there are instances, even in the New Testament, where there were people who were in the same party or a, a companion of Paul who were left ill somewhere. I think Epaphroditus is an example of that. Like, hey, you know, we left him sick somewhere. So if Paul could just heal anyone at any time, that would not have been the case. Paul would have just healed him. Uh, Paul couldn't heal himself of his own thorn in the flesh sort of eye disorder, whatever it was that he had. If he had malaria, then this was, this was something that kind of just hung on with him throughout the rest of his life. So this wasn't that sort of situation, but Paul was a willing vessel in the Lord's hand and the Lord used Paul's willingness and availability. And he empowered Paul as an agent to help bring healing to this man. And I, I, I think about that in our lives, how oftentimes those two ingredients are the things that God is so attracted to in the best way possible. Willingness and availability. You know, we can be willing but not available. Lord, I'll do it. But I, I'm so busy over here. I've got this thing. I'm willing, though. I would do it. But you're so immersed in your thing, your world, the thing that you're caught up with, that, you know what? It's not that God doesn't want to use you or maybe empower you in some way, but there's, there's a, a lopsidedness in that equation. Or, you know what? I'm, I'm available. I, I'm here, Lord, but... When he says go, you're like, I don't really want to. <laughs> he, 
here I am, Lord, send me. And then he's like, cool, I want to send you, I want to do something. And you're like, no, nah, just do. That makes me feel uncomfortable. Like, that person looks scary. But when those two things are together, man, what the Lord does, when there's availability and willingness, how God just is, he's so attracted to that. He's like, gosh, I love that. That honors me, that blesses me. And he just, he meets us in that place where those things are both present, that we're going, Lord, I'm here and I'll do it. Lord, I'm willing, but I'm also available. And, and, that, and I think oftentimes we miss out on things because there's some missing ingredients that, that are crucial in the Lord wanting to do the things that He's wanting to do in our lives. It's not that He's unwilling to use us. It's not that He doesn't have ways that He would want to use us, want to glorify Himself through us. But he's going, look, I, I want those things to both be present, willing and available. But once this happened, word got out around to the rest of the island. And because of this, the rest of those on the island, all who had diseases, any sort of weakness as a result of a sickness, all came. You know, I think about in the gospel accounts, and I see how oftentimes we'll find Jesus in these settings. Like, Jesus is in the house, and all came to him. You know, Jesus is here, he's, he's out somewhere, and all who are sick came to him. All the demon-possessed came to him. It's like, when we read that on Facebook, just, you know, we just read it, it's like, wow, that's amazing. And it is. But then when we think about it a little bit more, and we put ourselves in Jesus' place, or maybe even Paul's place here. I, I think about like Nacho Libre. Like, the kind of duties he had. Like, dead guy duty. Like, he wanted a different duty. And if, if our ministry at times is like, hey, for three months, a bunch of sick people are just going to come to you. They're all sick. They're coughing on you and throwing up. and Or even the demon-possessed things. Like, these are gnarly people. This is like guttural sounds and weird supernatural sorts of manifestations. And you're like, I don't know that I want that sort of ministry. Can I have a different duty? You know, like, can I get the, you know, blessing the rich duty? or? <laughs> but do I have to have, like, the disease duty, like, but that was, that was where Paul found himself. That was what was going on. The need of the hour, the need of that season was that these people just needed a touch of God in their life. And God moved Paul, even in the weirdest of ways, through a shipwreck to be there at a very specific point in time to help make these people whole. And God is in the business of making people whole still today. He does it all the time. There is a wholeness that God is concerned with. He doesn't look at just the spiritual side of us and then go, you know what, all that physical side, all that relational side, all that financial component, like all the emotional trauma, like, I don't really care about that part. Let's just save you and then you're still going to be a mess. 
God cares about it, cares about us as a whole person. That doesn't mean that God doesn't allow still sickness and all of these different sorts of things and financial instability and <laughs> relational brokenness. Those are just parts of living in a very broken, sin-immersed world. But to see that God would position Paul and his friends in a very specific way to have a very specific ministry that maybe in our, in our flesh we would, we would wish that maybe we could have something different. And yet God cared. God cared about these people on this island and he wanted to meet their needs. And, and no doubt as this healing was happening, I, I believe wholeheartedly that Paul and Aristarchus and, and Luke, they're sharing the gospel with all these people. Luke doesn't tell us explicitly that this is happening, but we have to remember that Luke is not recording every detail of every single thing that happened over that you know, 30-year span of time from the time that Jesus ascended till Paul is going to be you know, in, in house arrest here at the end of the chapter. These people were being given Jesus. And I think Paul, he just embraced it. He's like, cool, Lord, you, you had to shipwreck me here to be able to bring Jesus to these people? Like, awesome. He, he, could, he could grab a hold of that. Paul and his friends were there three months during those winter months. Paul didn't see this as a, as a break to get some me time, just sit at the beach. I mean, I've looked on Wikipedia at the island of Malta. Like, it is, I don't know that there's like more beautiful place. There probably is, but ah. you look at it and you're like, you can literally see everything in the water. I mean, it's right smack dab in the middle of the Mediterranean. It's like one of the most mild climates in all of the Mediterranean area, except for this typhoon that they had just come out of. You see coral reefs just clearly in these different bays that they were at. And Paul didn't just go, cool guys, like, hey, I'm just going to, I just want to kind of like sit on a log out on the beach. Three months, just let me chill out. Been through a lot the last couple of years. It'd be nice to have like sort of a three-month break. But he didn't. Instead, he saw and responded to opportunities to minister to the needs of others. His focus wasn't on himself, but on others, on how he could serve others, on how God might want to use him, and on how he could point people to Jesus and share the gospel. Paul practiced what he preached and what he wrote to others. Check out what he wrote to the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Paul said this, he said, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You know one of the things that oftentimes causes us to stop becoming steadfast and immovable? is when we're trying to abound in the work of the Lord, but we feel like our labor is in vain. And I've been doing this thing, I've been serving in this way, I've been showing up, I've been trying to love on this person, and I've been doing it, and I've been doing it, and I'm not seeing anything come out of it. And we just kind of 
we lose our zeal. We lose our excitement. We lose that desire to really just press into the Lord and continue and, and be that sort of unwavering person for Jesus, to be immovable, that we're just, we're faithful, we're there, we're in it, we're, we're going. Paul says, look, like, we got to keep going. We got to be steadfast. Keep abounding in the work of the Lord. And, and look, the, the work of the Lord ab abounds. There's no shortage of the work of the Lord in our day. But for us to be able to see what that work is, see what God's calling us to, see, to see, see those good works that God's created for us to walk in and then keep plugging away, keep being faithful in those things. Paul was a servant leader, leader whose life points us to the ultimate servant leader, Jesus. And as Paul sought to walk in Jesus' footsteps, follow Jesus' example, love and serve others like Jesus, to tell others about Jesus. Jesus used Paul's life powerfully. But know that as we seek to walk in Jesus' footsteps, as we seek to follow Jesus' example, as we seek to be servants of all and make our lives all about Jesus, He will use our lives as well. And we see the gratitude of the people in verse 10 in how they honored or provided financially for Paul and his friends. And when they finally departed, that they made sure that they had what was needed for their final leg of travel to Rome. And understand even in that, that Paul didn't serve the people with any expectation that he'd get something in return. But in God's grace, as Paul sought to be a blessing, the people blessed him and his friends in return. But let's continue on into our final section of verses. But uh, first read verse 11. It says, After three months we sailed in an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers which had wintered at the island. So again, they stayed three months. Those winter months were the worst conditions for sailing on the Mediterranean Sea at that time. They stayed till probably about February-ish where things would improve and sailing would become safe again. And so after those three months, they sailed, we're told, in an, in an Alexandrian ship that had wintered at the island. And I can't help wondering if these sorts of situations were, were things that the Lord allowed in order to bring another moment, another opportunity for Paul and his friends to trust the Lord and entrust their lives to the Lord, and I wonder that because the ship that they had been on that was shipwrecked was also an Alexandrian ship. You know, like an Alexandrian ship would, if I was in Paul's shoes, probably the last ship that I want to see, and definitely the last ship that I want to get back on to travel anywhere on. Like, I just was on a ship just like this, and that ship crashed. Like, I'm not looking to get into another Alexandrian ship, and the thing has false gods carved into the mat, like the figurehead thing. Like, I don't want anything to do with this ship. If it had a cross on the front or something, maybe I'd change my mind, but like, the twin brothers, I don't really want to get on that. 
You know, we, we put our trust into so many things every single day, and often without even thinking about it. How many times when we're sitting down on a chair we, do we think, I wonder if this chair is going to hold me up? We just sit down. We expect, we trust that the ship is going to, or the ship, that the chair is going to do what it's supposed to do. Unless we have a really funky lemon of a car, when we get in, when we put our key in and we turn the key, we expect that the car is going to turn on. Now, for some of us, that may not be the case. We might get into our car and we're like, I can't even open the door. The door lock is broken. We've got a car where one of the windows doesn't roll down. It's like you try to remember not to push the window down button in the car. So there are certain things you don't trust, but there's other things where even without thinking, we just trust that it's going to happen. When we're driving on the freeway, we're trusting that other people are not going to run us off the road every second. And other people are trusting that we're going to do the same with them and not run them off the road. But God wants our trust of Him to be intentional and genuine and, and constant. And so He'll allow or bring things into our lives regularly that require us to genuinely and intentionally and fully trust Him and depend upon Him. Paul and his two friends got on board that ship, trusting the Lord would get them safely where He wanted to take them. But let's look at our final verses, verses 12 through 15. It says, In landing at Syracuse, we stayed three days. From there, we circled around and reached Regium. And after one day, the south wind blew. And the next day, we came to Pudioli, where we found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days. And so we went toward Rome. And from there, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Appi Forum and Three Inns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. So we, we've got an image here. I know it's not going to be super visible for everybody. The first map image, if you would, kindly. There we go. So down at the bottom, there's Malta. Uh, Sardinia is the island here to the left, on the left side. But we see that they started to sail from Malta north. And they get to Syracuse, so all my Sicilians say, hey, but, so obviously no one else is Sicilian. I'm like 16% Sicilian, I found out, through 23 me. Anyways, so Syracuse, and they started to keep going. They made it to Regium there on the toe of the boot of Italy there, and continued forward. Once they got a really strong south wind, they made that final sort of 180 miles and in just about a day or so, they made it all the way to Pudioli there, which is actually on the north end of the Bay of Naples. So if you, like, if we were to try to picture sort of modern cities in Italy, uh, Pudioli is right there in sort of the Naples sort of area. And, and that was sort of the end of their, their ship-based travels. They were now going to travel by foot the rest of the way. And I want to show you another image here, zooms in a bit. So they get to Pudioli. There was a really famous road in that day called the Appian Way that would, you know, basically take them all the way into Rome. But Pudioli was 150 miles southeast of, of Rome. 
And in verse 14, Luke says, they found brethren when they got to Puteoli, and, and they were invited to stay with them seven days. So we, we see the Christian presence in Italy, even beyond Rome, that, that all no doubt traced back to and, and was a result of the work that the Lord did in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, close to 30 years earlier, where visiting Jews from Rome got saved after Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, and those people then taking the gospel with them back to Rome. And even in the more recent years before this point, those believers would have been further strengthened and equipped in the Lord by the letter that Paul wrote to and sent to the believers in the church in Rome, which we have as the book of Romans in our Bibles. And so Paul's desire for years, as we've considered recently even, was, was to go to Rome. But it never worked out. That was his desire. I want to get to Rome. I want to get to Rome. Never worked out until now with him getting there as a prisoner who had appealed to be judged by Caesar. But I can only imagine the joy that Paul experienced as he finally set foot in Italy. You know, all those years of desire to finally be there, to, to find disciples of Jesus there in, in Puteoli, and then to be welcomed in by them, to stay with them for a whole week. I, I'm sure that fellowship was so refreshing and encouraging for Paul and his friends. And what a cool thing that the centurion obviously allowed Paul to stay with these Christians for a week. But, but after that, they went on by foot to Rome where they were greeted by believers in two different places as they traveled toward Rome. As you can see from the map image there, kind of, there's two different spots there as they get closer to Rome where it says Forum of Appius and Three Taverns. It's, that's the two places there where believers from Rome travel down to greet Paul. So somehow the believers in Rome got word that Paul was there in Italy finally. So they traveled to these different regions there. And some went as far as Apiforum, which was 43 miles away from Rome. Others traveled as far as three inns or three taverns, which was 33 miles away from Rome. But all of that just shows us the excitement of the Roman believers to finally meet and welcome in the Apostle Paul. And as we see in verse 15, when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. And, and this to me is, is sort of a sweet fulfillment of something that Paul wrote to the Roman believers where he expressed his, his, his desire in wanting to come to them. We're going to show you the passage, but Paul wrote to them in Romans chapter 1 verses 9 through 12. He said, for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you. Notice that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now, I, I love it that while Paul had this desire to come to them, to impart some spiritual gift, to cause them to be even more established in their faith in Jesus, 
that at the same time, Paul also desired to be encouraged by them, and he believed that God could use them to encourage him, that, that the encouragement would be mutual, that it would go both ways. You know, Paul didn't believe he was the only one who could be used by the Lord to minister to others, but believed that any disciple of Jesus could be used by Jesus to minister to other people, including them ministering to him. And, and he knew how much he needed the ministry of others in his life, and the same is true for you and me. You and I need the ministry of others in our lives, and other people need the ministry that God wants to do through us in their lives. Paul saw these brethren from Rome journey all those miles to greet him and welcome him, and then they accompanied him on his way into Rome. And this encouraged Paul, and it caused him to give thanks to God. It caused Paul to worship the Lord. And as you and I journey in this life and seek to walk with others as they journey, God wants to use each of us in the lives of one another so that we all take courage, that we give thanks to God, that we worship Him. So each of us are strengthened to keep moving forward in faith with our eyes on Jesus and so that each of us will live for and proclaim and glorify Jesus with the lives that he's given us. But we're going to see Paul finally arrive in Rome, see the ministry of Paul in Rome in our study next week, Lord willing. But I'm going to have the worship team come back up. Just some final points of reminder and application for us. You know, each day brings new opportunities to trust the Lord. And oftentimes, even within a day, multiple opportunities, multiple things where it's like, okay, God, I got to trust you all over again. It's not a, a one and done when it comes to our faith in Jesus, our trust in Jesus. Not like, well, you know, years ago, I asked Jesus to be my Savior. I put my faith in Him. But, but now I don't, now that faith's not really required. No, it's required all the time. There's a constant, there's constant opportunities for us to trust Him. And there's also constant opportunities to serve Him and, and to serve others and point others to Jesus. He, he wants to use us in others' lives. He wants to use others in our lives. Because, look, we, we all need courage. We all need encouragement. We need to be reminded and to remind others to thank God, to worship Him no matter what. And we need to be reminded in these days to be steadfast, to be immovable, to always abound in the work of the Lord because that labor, that work is never in vain. You know, there's a lot of things that we can labor in that are completely empty from a spiritual and eternal perspective. In, in the grand scheme of things, that thing we might be laboring in might not really mean anything. But we, when we abound in the work of the Lord, when we seek to honor and glorify the Lord, guys, that the, that's the one thing that we can be confident will never be in vain. It'll never be empty. It's, it'll never be useless. It, it'll never have 
no effect, even if we don't see anything outwardly come from the work that we're plugging away in for Jesus. But look, if you're here this morning and you, you don't just have a first, you know, a, a personal saving relationship, I just want to encourage you this morning, remind you that, look, Jesus loves you so much. And going back to that whole judgment of the people of Malta thinking that Paul was a murderer, you know, we, we come to these points in our lives where sometimes we might think like, well, I'm doing pretty good, I'm a pretty good person, I've done some good things. There's a lot of people that are good people. But it's not goodness that gets us into heaven. It's not goodness that saves us. It's not our grandparents' relationship with God. It's not our church attendance that saves us. It's us humbling ourselves before the Lord of lords and King of kings, Jesus Christ, and saying, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need your salvation. I need your forgiveness. And that in that place, God would go, look, I want to save you. I want to forgive you. And so this morning, I want to give that opportunity for any that don't know the Lord. If that's you and you need to make that decision for Jesus Christ this morning, you know, Jesus said, look, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before the Father and all of the holy angels. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you. And, and so there's this profession of faith that the Lord is even looking for this morning, that if there's anyone who needs that salvation, that we'd be able to, to not keep it hidden. And so if that's you this morning and you need to make a decision for Jesus, that you would stand up where you're at and just go, look, that's me. I need Jesus. I need his forgiveness. I need his salvation. Like, I need the hope of Jesus. I need him to, to be at work in my life. Like, I, I want to go to heaven when I die. Like, the only way to get there is through Jesus Christ. Maybe this morning you're just in that place of, you know what, you, you need encouragement. Maybe you feel like you've been through the storm and the snake bite and you're like, look, I'm just barely hanging on. Maybe you feel like you've been plugging away and trying to serve the Lord and you've been trying to love others and you're, and you're feeling like your labor is in vain. I encourage you this morning that the Lord sees you and he values you. And he values the work that you've been doing for him to keep going, to keep looking to Jesus. But let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, so thankful for your grace, your kindness towards us. Lord, even now, Lord, that there may be some among us, maybe even some who would watch online or listen to this later on, who, who would go, look, like, I... I need Jesus. I need, I need my sins forgiven. Like I've, I've tried to do good things, but I, I, still, I still sin. Like we, we're going to keep sinning, but has the forgiveness of Jesus been 
brought to you? Has the salvation of Jesus come into your life? Has, have you been made right with the Father because of what Jesus did? To be able to even this morning go, look, that's, that's me. Like, I need those things. I need what only Jesus can provide. That y- even now, you'd humble yourself before the Lord. Just say, Jesus, that's me. I'm a, I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness. I need your salvation. Jesus, come into my life. Save me. Give me hope, Lord. Give me the promise of eternal life. Make me a child of God. Would you seal me with your Holy Spirit? Would you give me your righteousness, Jesus? And would you help me to live for you? Just to say this morning, Jesus, I I repent of my sin. And I put my faith in you. The Bible says if you believe, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But Lord, for those who are just, you know, maybe they're struggling. Maybe they've been serving and they've been through the storm. They've been through the snake bite, so to speak. Stuff just hasn't gotten better. Maybe the, the ministry that you put in their lives is not, not really the thing that they would desire in their flesh. Lord, maybe, maybe they'd want some other duty. But God, this morning, would you bring a fresh perspective to those in whatever circumstances, Lord, that they're facing? Lord Jesus, would they see that you're with them? And God, would you strengthen them to be steadfast? Would you strengthen them, Lord, to be immovable, to to keep abounding in the work of the Lord? God, would they be filled with hope, Lord, knowing your promise, God, that the labor for you, Lord, is never in vain. So God, would you meet, would you encourage, would you give hope, would you bring strength? Lord, would you give your peace? Lord, to those who are hurting and dealing with sickness and disease, Lord, would you bring healing? Lord, would you touch and heal and help and intervene? But God, at the same time, Lord, would you help us to be both willing and available to you? Lord, that our lives would be all about Jesus. And Lord, would you use us for your kingdom and your glory in these days? We thank you, Father. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.